Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek, the best way to buy tickets. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and save $20 off on your first purchase by using our promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and this is the week of August 6th, 2018. On this week's episode, our good friend Jim Callis from MLB.com joins the show to discuss MLB Pipeline's new Top 100 and the White Sox Top 30 Prospects. I ask him when he thinks about the current status of Aloy Jimenez and Michael Kopech, if Dylan Cease has what it takes to be a starting pitcher in the majors, which White Sox prospects he feels could reach the majors and the prospect that has surprised him the most in 2018. We'll have the minor league report, which will touch on the great starts this past week from Michael Kopech and Dylan Cease and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But first, the Chicago White Sox have won four games in a row. Everything is awesome. Joining me to recap the sweep of the Tampa Bay Rays is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox have won four in a row. Everything is awesome. I really didn't feel like this 2018 squad was going to reach this achievement. I could see it happening, but not against a team like the Rays on the road. Did not see that happening. No, it was a very tight series in which each game was decided by one run. And contrasts and styles of play, Tampa really likes the small ball. Like they like to, they like to bunt and they like to run. 
And obviously that put the White Sox, as far as especially their bullpen, in some unique situations late in games just because having those guys on base, like Malik Smith, I mean, Malik Smith looks like he could be an above average major leaguer every time he faces the White Sox. He just has such yeah. a productive series against them. And Joey Wendell, I, I've been thinking to myself, man, this guy could be a pretty good major leaguer. But it just seems like these are the types of players that always give the White Sox fits. And uh, a big reason why that Tampa Bay uh, is a 500 team, despite having a lot of people on their squad that a lot of fans don't know anything about these guys. Uh, if you do follow as far as White Sox minors, you do you have heard of some of these guys because they beat up on the Charlotte Knights the past couple of years uh, with the Durham Bulls. Uh, but the White Sox found a way. They sweep Tampa Bay. And I think the first thing I want to touch on, and it was a great way to start this series, is Lucas Giolito's great start on Friday night. Seven innings, only allowed two hits, one earned run. He struck out six, and he had three walks. And Jim, in the last 30 days, which has covered Giolito's last five starts, it's 31 innings, which is good. He's averaging more than six innings per start. Only 21 hits allowed, 23 strikeouts to 14 walks, with a 3.19 ERA, is this progress, Jim, or a mirage? I think it's some progress. It's not, you know, it's not an overpowering form that is going to leave an impression on you. If if he's going to improve, it's going to take this kind of form where all of a sudden, like he hasn't sucked in a while. I think that's basically going to be how we watch him. But uh, it seemed like he learned from the last start where. Uh, the start before where he's throwing a lot of high fastballs, really trying to get in on guys and jam them. And he wasn't pitching poorly, but the fastballs weren't up enough. They weren't in enough. And so they were just able to muscle line drives over the infield or get into the gaps. And it seemed like the wrong approach considering how much success he was having with, uh, with two seamers and with changeups. And this time around pretty changeup heavy. I mean, I, I didn't get to watch the starts in real time because uh, my power is out for the first six innings. So uh, I, I had to kind of catch up and watch it out of order. But from what I saw, it seemed like he had a lot of change-ups and was working low in the zone, missing low a lot, got a lot of grounders, and that seemed to work for him. And it seemed like the kind of recipe he should have used last time and the fact that he corrected himself and that he was able to correct himself, not only you know that they used that approach, but also that he was effective the same way twice in a row, uh, that's that's confidence inspiring, and you know he'll have to adjust, of course, and teams might pick up on that. And but at least uh, it seemed like he was able to find something that worked, stick to it, and see results. See results from it. Yeah, that ninth inning unfortunately got a bit dicey, but the game went into extra innings. It gave the White Sox and Yohan Mikata an opportunity to deliver the game-winning hit, and uh, another opportunity to talk about Tim Anderson's base running. I guess this is something that I've never noticed where he slows down between third and home plates to see where the ball is. Like he's not able to run at full speed and look over his shoulder, but now, I mean, he hasn't had that mistake in the other two games, but it is something that I have now caught on. That is just a, thing that Tim Anderson does is that he slows down between third and home, but it did not matter because the White Sox won the first game and Tim Anderson had himself a good series. Tim Anderson's having himself a good week. The other big start out of this series was Carlos Rodon. Now the walks and strikeouts, not exactly pretty. Carlos Rodon had five walks to four strikeouts, but going up against Blake Snell, this was going to be a tough matchup, a very 
a matchup that I was really looking forward to. And it lived up to the billing. And the White Sox, thanks to a bunt and a misplay by Tampa's defense in the ninth inning, uh, the White Sox were able to win that game. And about Rodon, in his last four starts, Jim, his ERA is 1.26. He's only allowed one home run in his last four starts. If you remembered, he was really giving up a lot of home runs when he was starting off in 2018, breaking off the rust. And he's got 25 strikeouts to 11 walks in his last 28 and two-thirds innings. Rodon's season ERA is now 2.94. Is this peak Carlos Rodon, or do you think that there's an opportunity for him to get better? I think it's around peak. Uh, it, you know, when you look at guys who have the sub three ERAs over the course of full season, they're the best of the best. And Rodon hasn't quite proven himself there. But what I liked about the Tampa start is that, you know, it's the kind of outing where he shows that he can punch himself off the ropes and that you have to beat him. You know, he doesn't allow, he doesn't beat himself. He might, you know, dig himself holes with walks, with hit by pitches. Um, you know, it's, he tends to lose his command at times, but when it comes to getting the final 90 feet, he makes you earn it. And the Rays couldn't earn it against him. The one run was an infield single. Um, it, it, almost a close play. You know, Anderson made a nice effort to get it, just couldn't get a effective throw off, and it might not have even beat him anyway. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of that's the kind of thing I've come to expect from Rodon, and I think that's what he brings to the rotation is that you know, when you look at watch Lopez or Giolito starts or Dylan Covey, uh, you know, when they get in a jam, might not go that well. You know, they tend to lose their command for four or five batters at a time, whereas Rodon, maybe it's you know, two in a row, uh, maybe things aren't looking good, but then like when that runner's on third base, he just uh, bears down and um, finds his command, finds his release point, either that or you know, he gets people to chase. And it's uh, it's a talent that is rare, and it's one that uh, you know the other young starters would. Yeah, I'm not sure whether you learn that, whether it's kind of born from having the stuff that Rodon has, but it can't hurt seeing it up close. Now, with Kevin Smith and his wife having their son over the weekend, Wyatt Daniel, congratulations to both of them. That meant Omar Naveas did a lot of the catching. Dustin Grinnell caught James Shields on Sunday. Again, if you've been watching the Charlotte Knights, you've gotten a chance to see Garneau catch Michael Kopech with the Knights for a lot of the second half uh, of this season. And with Norvegas working with Giolito and Rodon, maybe that's a good pairing because typically it's Kevin Smith that's been working with Lucas Giolito. Do you think that there could be something with that? Because the pairing of Norvegas and Rodon Jim, you can't argue now on how well that seems to be working because it seems that both of these guys are more in sync than they were at the beginning of Rodon's season in 2018. Uh, Norvegas, again, is hitting much better, and defensively, he's also looking much better, making much stronger throws, especially on base stealers trying to swipe second base on him. Would it make sense for Omar Norvegas to catch Lucas Giolito more often? Um, maybe not. I mean, when it comes to Smith and Narvaez and with Giolito, I did, I, I did like the correction that Narvaez made in the, in the start that Giolito had before where he kept going up and in and up in fastballs and it wasn't working. And that was Smith behind the plate. I didn't think he called a very good game. So I think Narvaez, um, you know, made that correction. And I think it was, you know, rather obvious. Maybe Smith even makes that correction the second time out. So, you know, based on one outing, I wouldn't say anything and, 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 his defense was pretty rough when it came to blocking. Like his throwing is 
definitely head and shoulders above Smith's, and he gives uh, pitchers a chance to actually you know get a free out here and there with his throwing. But yeah, his blocking did leave a lot to be desired, especially that one with uh, Vieira on the mound. Calls a slider in the dirt. Vieira throws a slider in the dirt, goes right between his legs. That's pretty much inexcusable. So, uh, you know, I will credit you know Narvaez for calling a good game and. Um, yeah, it wouldn't hurt to try it again. I still think it makes sense for a guy like Giolito to get as many strikes as possible. So maybe the better framer is still the better option in the long run. You know, maybe when Wellington Castillo comes back, he solves both those issues of having good defense and better receiving than Narvaez. But, um, you know, based on one start, I would probably, um, you know, give Smith a chance to see if he can call a better game based on one bad one uh, before I made any kind of big sweeping judgment on it. You mentioned Tiago Vieira. Tiago Vieira got the save on Saturday, and uh, I was holding my breath on how that outing was going to go, uh, but he got through it, and he was really pumped up after... Overjoyed. I, You know what, though? <laughs> I love it. I could see where maybe the veterans pull him to the side and be like, hey, you can't do that uh, in the majors, but that's his first career save, man. Like that was a big moment for him. Tyler Danish had some big moments in front of all of his family and friends because he's from the area and he got the White Sox out of some big jams this weekend. And he was really pivotal in some high leverage situations. And he's proven that he can get the tough righties out, uh, which is a, a nice sign to see. But Tiago Vera, I mean, obviously he's got the type of stuff that you expect to see out of ninth inning relievers, right? Lights up the radar guns, got a nasty slider. Would you like to see him close out more games for the White Sox moving forward? Maybe. I mean, just based on the lack of compelling options, you know, give him another shot. I, I do question whether he has the kind of reliable command because his first outing was really rough. And, you know, that's and he's, he had the kind of uh, tendency in Charlotte. You got a little bit of a roll, five, six good outings in a row, and then just a couple disasters. I think he maybe runs hot and cold with his uh, you know, control and command. So, yeah, it, it's great to see him have one good outing. Uh, I wouldn't want to put too much faith in him. You know, maybe give him another shot. And uh, I guess I just want, want to put him in the position where, you know, one bad outing all of a sudden, you know, in a high-profile situation, um, you know, kind of reverses all the good vibes. And all of a sudden you're just like, oh, that was really awful. He faced four batters, you know, you know, walked two, hit one, didn't get a guy out, and you know they lost the game. Yeah, you know, I think that's the kind of outing he can have based on his erratic uh, performance in Charlotte. So I wouldn't want to, I guess, place too much stress on him. Treat him as like a closer. Treat him as the guy. But you know, if it makes sense, if it's a you know two or three run lead and he's facing righties, you know, give him another shot. I don't think it hurts. It just I wouldn't place any tag on him. I understand not placing a tag on him, but Hector Santiago, you, I don't have a lot of confidence in him. To, to pitch a clean ninth inning either. Yeah, I do like him. Yeah, I do like him in this role better than basically it was what Renteria was trying to do with Chris Volstad in the eighth inning. And I think uh, I, I always liked Santiago for that idea better. If you're going to try to keep the game close or protect the lead and you got lefties at the plate, Santiago's not a bad option if you want to go, you know, four plus outs. But right now I think he's just kind of making it up as he goes along. And I don't think there is really any... Um, pattern and he's it's kind of trying to sift through options to see which one's the best but at least Santiago you know given his track record given that he's you know had ups and downs and made an all-star team and you know been DFA'd he's kind of been through the whole thing already so one bad game isn't going to mean nearly as much to him if he does you know kind of flop in a high profile situation whereas Vieira is just trying to get things figured out 
What are your thoughts about Tyler Danish this weekend? I like his stuff. I, I like his slider at least. You know, you know the, the fastball, you know, is more of a sinking thing, you know, trying to get ground balls and such more of a weak contact pitch, but the slider seemed to have more bites and more late life than I remember seeing in the minors when he was trying to start where it's kind of more of a frisbee pitch. Um, you know, more of a change of pace pitch that had some movement. This seems more like a swing and miss offering and it didn't show up in a strikeout rate in Charlotte. So maybe I'm a bit skeptical of its long-term viability, but I think the control was there. Um, and, and, you know, he should be watchable whether it's, um, and really (laughs) having three one run games kind of makes it hard to, you know, I guess give him an inning or two, but I think he's that kind of guy. Whereas if there's a short start, um, you know, maybe like, you know, keep bringing up Chris Volstead, but that idea of, you know, say if, uh, Covey or Shields or whoever goes four innings and need somebody to keep the game close for innings five through seven. I would like to see him get that run because it seems like he does have, um, you know, a couple different looks to give hitters and can maybe face them, you know, twice through the lineup. So, um, you know, based on the other options and based on how quickly he works and uh, the strikes he throws, it seems like there's a more watchable option there than what the White Sox have trotted out in that role. I kind of like him in those high leverage situations. I'd like to see, yeah, against righties. Yeah, not against lefties. But, I mean, he got some big outs for the White Sox this weekend. And, again, a cool moment to do that in front of his family and friends. But moving forward, I I agree with you, Jim. He could be someone that can eat an inning or two. And as we've been talking about the past week, if you've been listening to the the shows, that – there's really nobody that it's clear that there's not a lot of guys in this bullpen that Renteria trusts right now to pitch a whole inning. That's why we're seeing one pitcher for one out. Jace Fry comes in, gets the one lefty out. He swaps out for Juan Minaya. Minaya gets one better out. He gets swapped out for Jean Marc Gomez or, or whomever is coming out of the bullpen for the White Sox. Uh, but I mean, if, if, t- if the White Sox are in a tough spot in this upcoming week against the Yankees, which we'll preview that series in a moment, and the Cleveland Indians this weekend, uh, I'd like to see if, if Tyler Danish can get those tough righties out. It'd be interesting if he, in a late-game situation, tied or the White Sox are ahead and, uh, you know, against John, John Carl Stanton's got to come up to the plate. Maybe that would be a good time to see, all right, Tyler Danish, young guy. Let's see if you can fly. <laughs> yeah, they're going to they're be tough decisions. Um, it's one thing I think yeah. against the Rays where they don't have any home run threats, but uh, given the way the Yankees play, a little bit different. Much different. Much, much different. Uh, Daniel Polka comes through in the ninth inning again on Sunday with a monster home run to straightaway center. My jaw dropped when he hit it just because of the absolute brute power that he has in the last week. Daniel Polka is two for 14, but both hits are home runs and both hits have came late in the game. Of course, beating the Royals in the bottom of the eighth inning. And of course his home run at the top of the ninth inning. So the game is on the line for the White Sox bottom, the eighth at home or bottom, the ninth situation is Daniel Polka. The man you want at the plate right now, Jim, for the White Sox. I would say yes, probably. Maybe Jose Abreu, the way he's hitting the ball. Um, I would say Abreu 1, Polka 2, Avi 3 maybe in that order. Um, just because when it comes to Polka, if you need a homer uh, and, and you know, basically in that situation where you have a runner on first and two outs, um, you know, <laughs> scoring position is kind of at the plate. 
and he has a zone he can hit. And I think that's kind of, when I watch hitters and I watch hitters struggle and, and watching the White Sox last several years, you see hitters struggle. Uh, and, and, you know, when watching Abreu go through his slump and watching Avi when he's cold and watching Davidson, for instance, right now, or like say after May, um, the thing that kind of, you know, either I notice or wonder about is just what is a hitter's pitch? Um, and, and when, when Abreu was cold, he was following everything back. He was hopping off balance. And when Avi's cold, he's following things off and not getting around, not pulling the ball. Uh, Davidson, same thing, swinging through stuff. And so I like the fact that Polka has one pitch he can reliably crush. And that's kind of uh, elevated. So like, say, you know, thigh high to belt high, over the plates, outer half. Loves that pitch. <laughs> it creams it. And, uh, you know, the fact that he struck out in his first four bats kind of, I think, shows his flaws or limitations. But... Uh, at least he has one pitch he likes, and when he can kind of, uh, I guess, yeah, you know, in the way he's described it after the games, when he has his thought process, and yeah, you know, maybe it's kind of late game situation, saying like, I need my one pitch, I can't swing at three things out of the zone and be out. It doesn't do any good. Like he just kind of waits for pitchers to ele- elevate up, and I kind of wonder, you know, perhaps will pitchers try to work above the zone three times in a row? Um, you'll go fastballs up, up, up. And maybe swings through that, but for the time being, at least the fact that he has something he likes, and you know his swing path is such that he can make reliable contact on the pitch and do a lot with it, um, that, that gives me the confidence that other guys, like say you know, um, you know Mancada and, and Tim Anderson, don't quite have the the one pitch, the one zone that they can just light up. I did buy his jersey, Jim. He's fun. Yeah, like at the very least, he'll be. A fun name to remember five years from now. Yes. So if you find me at the White Sox Angels series in September, I will be wearing my Daniel Polka jersey. Unless Aloy Jimenez gets called up, then I will be wearing that Aloy Jimenez jersey that I'll be ordering as soon as he gets called up. But no, I'm going to be the proud owner of a Daniel Polka jersey in a week or two. He is fun. And... I wish I, there are some White Sox fans that I think legitimately are trying to wonder if Polka is somebody that could stick around long term. I'd feel a little bit more confident in that possibility if his on base percentage was north of 310, but it's nowhere near that. So at the moment, I look at this as like a fling. It's going to be fun as long as it lasts. How long it's going to last, I've got no idea. But I'm totally here for him leading the team in home runs at the end of the year. Right now, he's just two behind. He's got 17 home runs in the season. Jose Abreu now leads the team with 19 home runs as he did did hit three home runs uh, in three games in a row. Uh, Jose Abreu, by the way, folks, has been red hot the past week. He's 11 for 23 in the last week hitting-wise with those three home runs. So hopefully he can stay hot coming into this upcoming week. Now, before we talk about this upcoming week, there was a transaction that happened that caught my eye, and I wonder if it has any impact on the possibility of moving James Shields. And that is the St. Louis Cardinals claimed San Diego Padres starting pitcher Tyson Ross. And what made this interesting is that the Padres let him go for free. That's right, for free. All St. Louis has to do is just take on the contract and they give up no prospects for Tyson Ross. Can the White Sox make a similar move for James Shields, Jim, or is it just too much money to eat for a team? I think it's 
possible. You know, I, I, I imagine we'll see, you know, if he gets through waivers not claimed, then, you know, that's really kind of off the table. <laughs> and, you know, the White Sox would have to either, you know, eat a lot of the contract or, or what have you. But when it comes to Shields, I can see it going two ways. One, if they find a deal where it's kind of like a token A-ball prospect in return, you know, they save some money, they can give Shields a chance to play with a contender, you know, even though he's, you know, had success with contenders before. Um, you know, maybe they do that just because it's kind of closing the book on that move and, you know, so on and so forth. But I can also see the case where, you know, if they don't want a reason to call it Michael Kopech, you know, if they are, for whatever reason, trying to wait until April of 2019, then it seems like Shields has a lot of value being one, you know, they can say he's, you know, somebody who saves the bullpen, works six plus innings, you know, pretty much every time, uh, is going to throw more than 200 innings this year and the rotation needs somebody like that. Uh, the fact that he is a veteran mentor, um, you know, and, and I thought it was funny that uh, Dylan Cease uh, credited Dane Dunning with helping uh, him improve his curveball during this recent stretch of dominance. And Shields was the guy who helped Dunning with his curveball. So you're kind of seeing a trickle down effect. And I can see if you call up young pitchers, you know, even say if Kopech does come up, having a guy like Shields around to teach him the ropes and, and be that uh, veteran presence that they've, um, you know, that they've pointed to Shields as in the past. Yeah, I can see them wanting him around for that. So I can kind of see, you know, whether it says cover for not calling up a guy, reason to call up a guy and help him get along. Uh, I see those as more likely than them just trying to work out a deal for nobody and saving uh, no meaningful amount of money. So, yeah, that's my guess. But um, I, I guess we'll see if, you know, no team claims him and uh, there's we don't hear about a window, then I guess that, uh, you know, he's kind of up for grabs. Let's preview the upcoming series Monday through Wednesday series against the New York Yankees. And before we get into the pitching probables, Jim, on Sunday, Eloy Jimenez was sick with the flu. He was a late scratch in the lineup so late that nobody, not even the Charlotte Knights broadcasters, knew that he was scratched out of the lineup when they realized that he wasn't on deck to hit. Is this a cover-up for a possible call-up? for Aloy Jimenez this series? Um, I'm looking at Scott Merkin's tweet, and he had flu-like symptoms on at 4.15 p.m., so that was about an hour before the game started. So perhaps, like, you know, it it, it wasn't as big a surprise, I suppose, with that knowledge, you know, that, um, yeah, because I didn't see that tweet at the time, so I, I got caught up with it afterwards, but... Um, you know, with that knowledge, you know, it doesn't seem as far-fetched that you just didn't feel up to it and they need somebody. And the fact that they scratched Jose Rondon after he was supposed to be the DH and Ryan Lamar took a spot, you know, I think that's maybe more indicative of a roster move to come. But, um, yeah, it, it seemed like they wouldn't have to if they didn't, you know, like, it seems like just kind of a move too far. If they just want to call him up and they want to say flu-like symptoms, why wouldn't you want the excitement of a guy coming up if you want to sell those tickets, you know, so... I think that's maybe a conspiracy theory. I don't quite buy. He was still in the dugout, but that fuels into conspiracy theory. If you have the flu, what are you doing by your teammates? Oh, it's flu-like. Maybe he's hungover. <laughs> Too much hashtag 108ing in the Charlotte yeah. area over yep. the weekend. Oh. <laughs> well, looking at your pitching problems for this series, starting on Monday, I don't know why, but ESPN has decided that they want to broadcast this game. It'll be Lance Lynn for the New York Yankees against Dylan Covey. On Tuesday, CeCe Sabathia will take the mound against Ronaldo Lopez. And on Wednesday, if Lucas Giolito continues his hot streak, he'll need it. 
because he'll be going up against Luis Severino for the New York Yankees. All these games are at 7, 10 p.m. Central Time. Jim, I know I've been bragging about my Oakland A's prediction I made as they are making me look really smart at the moment. The A's are catching the New York Yankees and the Houston Astros. The A's are only three games back in New York and four games back at Houston for the American League West. But what seemed to be a pretty secure wildcard spot, at the very least hosting that one game playoff, seems a bit shaky at the moment. After what happened in Boston this weekend, how badly do the Yankees need this series? Uh, it would help. And, you know, part of it is because Lance Lynn is somebody who they got as pitching depth. And, you know, with Sonny Gray wobbling, they figured they needed somebody who could step in and, you know, perhaps have some starting upside for a low acquisition cost. And, you know, Lynn didn't cost the, uh, the Yankees much to acquire. Um, and, and, and then it'll be kind of fascinating to watch because Lynn's had a couple good starts against the Sox. He's one and one this year. He had, uh, he's gotten off to strong starts in both of his outings against the Sox. The first time they, they got wise to him the second time through, uh, his last start was an effective six innings. So, you know, there's some, uh, you know, possibility for Lynn, you know, this being the right opponent for him at the right time and giving the Yankees a start. They needed to get kind of get past Sonny Gray. Sabathia has wobbled. Severino has really been rocky his this month. Um, yeah, so the White the White Sox seem to be getting the Yankees at the right time, uh, if you can, you know, with Aaron Judge out and such. And uh, so it seems like if they do what they did to the Rays and just kind of give the Yankees a real tough time, you know, it's one thing to kind of get clobbered and, you know, beat up by the Red Sox, but to lose a series to the White Sox, I think that might cause some panic given just how, you know, we look at the standings and if you're not watching the White Sox recently and don't know that they've been playing a little bit better and getting some sloppy wins... Um, then it seems like, yeah, just <laughs> could cause uh, the panic. Unfortunately, you know, the Daily News fired basically its entire uh, sports staff, so they don't have to worry about that back page. But yeah, yeah one of my friends got laid off in that that uh, that mess. But uh, yeah, just like they don't have, that's one less tabloid to worry about. But uh, yeah, otherwise, it's tensions could be high if if they have a poor showing against the Sox. But uh, it does seem the lineup, you know, aside from say Dylan Covey starting, you know, that's. I think the Yankees like Kobe and say, like, what's the big deal here? So, you know, perhaps that's the one pitching matchup they like with Lance Lynn. But otherwise, yeah, it's uh, uh, two teams that are kind of stumbling, but only one was expected to. What are you hoping to see out of the White Sox in this series? Well, I'd like to see uh, Giolito pick up where he left off and, you know, kind of, you know, he had one rough start, uh, one start where he corrected himself, and I'd like to see those corrections stick. So that's one of them. Uh, it'd be fun to beat up CC Sabathia given, you know, just the White Sox long history with him and, uh, all the times he frustrated them as a Indians pitcher. Yeah, I always like seeing. I like Sabathia, but I, I enjoy seeing the White Sox beat him up, given uh, just how annoying he was when he was wearing a Cleveland uniform. But uh, I will. Yeah, I think. Well, based on the last time the White Sox were on a national broadcast in ESPN, Rick Sutcliffe was the guy. He said some baffling things about the White Sox. I think I'm going to be missing that one because the Yankees broadcast is local, so they'll be blacked on ESPN. But I would like to hear if Sutcliffe, if he's on the call saying any baffling things, I would greatly appreciate that people tweeting me or uh, you know, clipping it, whatever, with uh, some of the uh, confusing things we won't be able to hear. Well, coming up next, our good friend Jim Callis joins us to share his thoughts behind the new top 100 prospect rankings for MLBpipeline.com and the top 30 White Sox prospects next on the Sox Machine Podcast. 
Before we speak with Jim Callis, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Whether you are headed to a baseball game or concert this summer, SeatGeek has you covered. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, plan a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. By searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value, SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets at SeatGeek with confidence. I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets for Chicago White Sox games. As a matter of fact, I'll be going this upcoming Saturday, August 11th, between the White Sox and the Cleveland Indians for Jim Tomey Bobblehead Day. I found four Great seats at a great deal for 50 bucks total for four tickets. And you could find great deals this upcoming week as well on SeatGeek for the Yankees series. For Monday's game, tickets start at $10. Tuesday's game, $9. And Wednesday night's game is $17. And this upcoming weekend against the Cleveland Indians, tickets for Friday start at $7. If you want to get that Tommy Bobblehead Day, first 20,000 fans, tickets start at $10 on SeatGeek. And on Sunday, a great deal. Tickets are just 5 bucks on SeatGeek for White Sox Indians on Sunday, August 12th. Best part is that Sox Machine listeners get to save money off your first purchase. If you've never used SeatGeek before, download their app and use our promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. As we enter into August, there have been a lot of prospect movement around Major League Baseball. Players dealt in trades, players called up and graduated from prospect status, has shuffled top rankings throughout the league. How do the White Sox stack up now compared to other teams, and who gets the nod to be in the top 30 prospects for the White Sox system? Well, join us now is our good friend of the podcast from MLB.com. It's Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. Thanks for joining us again. Oh yeah, glad to be here, Josh. Always good talking to you. A new top 100 prospect list and a new top 30 list for each team. And I have to imagine there was a lot of adjusting to do at the trade deadline. Which teams do you think, from obtaining prospects point of view, did the best? Well, you know, it's funny. There weren't that many big prospects traded over the course of the last couple of weeks. I mean, the only two top 100 guys that got traded were, were Francisco Mejia, went to the Padres for, for Brad Hand and, and another relief pitcher. And then um, uh, Uziel Diaz was part of the, the Manny Machado trade that, that went to send him from the World Dodgers. So I, I don't feel like a lot of times at a, at a trade deadline when it's done, you can say, boy, these, these two or three teams have really upgraded their systems. And I don't know if anybody's really done that. I mean, the Orioles – Made you know some major trades with with, with trading Machado and Kevin Gossman and Jonathan Scope and Zach Britton, 
But I was, I'll be honest, I was underwhelmed kind of with three of the four trades. I thought they did pretty well for Britain. I, I know Machado was a rental, um, but I still thought you could have gotten more in terms of the, the other players in the deal behind using El Diaz. And, you know, with, with Gosman and Scope getting traded, neither of those guys was a pending free agent. And I actually used this analogy on a radio show I did. They, they should have taken a page out of Rick Hahn's book and said, look, we don't have to trade these guys. And if we don't get an offer that blows us away, we're not going to do it. I, I, I'm especially perplexed by the Gossman trade when he's got two more years after this one before he becomes a free agent. So in terms of just sheer number of prospects, Josh, I think the Orioles uh, added the most. But I don't think they made this unbelievable uh, you know, turnaround of their farm system, which I still think kind of falls in that if you're breaking the farm system up into groups, like probably the third group out of four, somewhere in that like 15 to 22 range, um, they did not do – the job the White Sox did when the White Sox were trading guys. And I know the I know the White Sox guys had a little bit more favorable contracts, but but I don't. I'll be honest. That's a long way of saying I don't think there's a a clear cut winner at this deadline from a prospect standpoint. Not even Tampa for that deal that they made with Pittsburgh, where they are now obtaining Austin Meadows, or has the prospect luster well, shined off for Meadows? Well, I mean, that that one's tricky because in our eyes, it's not that the luster's off of him, but he doesn't count as a prospect anymore. He graduated. Okay. He no longer has rookie status. I mean, he does for this year, but he's no longer, you know, he, he so, like, we didn't look at that as a prospect deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really interested, you know, in them getting, you know, Meadows and Tyler Glasnow. I don't know if they can turn Tyler Glasnow into a – into a starter, we'll see. I mean, the, the Pirates had a lot of trouble doing that. But, um, but I, I did like that trade. That was interesting. And the Rays made some other moves as well. But those guys, I, I didn't count them because those guys don't count as prospects anymore. All right, looking at it from the White Sox, then, they have seven prospects in the new top 100 for MLBpipeline.com. An impressive number and a good sign to see when you are a rebuilding ball club. Where does this system now rank compared to all of the major league clubs, Jim? In my mind, I think they're the second-best farm system in baseball behind the Padres. Now, we will have official MLB Pipeline uh, staff voted upon farm system rankings. That will be out on Friday, uh, which I guess is the third, and I'm not sure when you're going to air this podcast. But uh, the White Sox, uh, I'll go ahead and let it slip in case uh, it comes out early. The, the White Sox will be third. So the consensus of our staff was number three. I personally will put the number two. I don't think it really matters. Uh, you know, either way, you know, either way you look at it, they have a very good farm system. Now, Aloy Jimenez, looking at the individuals, there's been a lot of discussion about him in Chicago lately. But he's the third best prospect behind Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Fernando Tatis Jr. I assume that Tatis is ahead of Jimenez because of defensive ability. But what's the gap between Jimenez and Guerrero? Um, I just think we like Guerrero just a little bit more. You know, he's younger. I think he's two years younger than Eli. But I mean, I think those are your two best hitting prospects. And you're right. I mean, Tatis is a very good offensive prospect as well. And you know, seeing him, you know, at the Futures game, he's a lot better shortstop uh, than I realized too. So uh, it, it's. I, I, I'll pour salt in the wound. It's too bad he isn't still with the White Sox. Uh, but, uh, you know, Rick Hines won that trade. But, uh, 
But no, I mean, I, I don't think they're – I mean, you're not talking about much difference at all between Vlad Jr. and Eloy because, you know, I know Vlad Jr. is a third baseman right now, but I don't think too many people think he's really going to be a third baseman long term, and I think he's going to have as much defensive value as Eloy um, in the long run. Both those guys, you, you're, you're, you're going to be excited about the bat. That's what gets you all excited about those guys. And the White Sox second-ranked prospect in the top 30 and the 13th overall-ranked prospect is Michael Kopech. And what I found interesting in the top 100 is that 10 through 15 are all pitchers. Mackenzie Gore, uh, Jesus Lazardo, Mitch Keller, Mike Soroka. Uh, they all take spots 10 through 15 along with Michael Kopech. I guess what's preventing Kopech from being a top 10 prospect, Jim? Um, well, I mean, I think the stuff is definitely there. I mean, and the thing is, to be clear, you could argue these guys. You know, we had Roy Lewis at number 10. If you wanted to argue Michael Kopech, I think you could certainly make that argument. So, I mean, I think it's just kind of personal taste with whoever's list you're looking at. You know, I think the thing that, that, that maybe knocks him down a couple of pegs is just the control. And, and that said... I don't know if this will make sense the way this could come out. I think control matters a little less with him, Josh, than it does with other guys because he's, he's so unhittable, and he always has been, that if he walks a couple guys, he can get out of it more easily than another guy. Like, you know, we mentioned Tyler Glasnow earlier in this, and Tyler Glasnow's got good stuff, but he doesn't have Michael Kopech's stuff, and Glasnow gets in trouble, and he doesn't always wriggle out of it. But that's all. I mean, you know, in terms of pure stuff, uh, it's hard to argue with Kopech's fastball slider combination. There is a fear for White Sox fans that we will not see Alo Jimenez or Michael Kopech join the White Sox until possibly mid-April 2019 for service time-related issues. I guess you, we can call that issues. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that is a good move by the White Sox to extend control for Jimenez or Kopech, or do you find it beneficial that these two players, who right now don't seem to have much of a challenge in the International League, could use some time in the majors? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. But, I mean, from a team standpoint, there's no real reward for calling them up right now. I mean, yes, you get them acclimated to big leagues a little bit earlier, but they're not going to contend next year. So you can call them up, you know, like you said, after a few weeks in the next season when you delay their free agency for an extra year, and it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, it's unfortunate, but there is no real reason to call them up. And, you know, then I saw, I mean, I forget what the quote was exactly, but I think Rick Conn recently was quoted, you know, there's some – you know, things that they have to check off before they come up, you know, which is standard speak for the, hey, this guy's really good, but we don't want to become a free agent for an extra year, so we'll <laughs> say he has stuff to work on. I mean, Cubs did the same thing with Chris Bryant and then called him up the day after uh, his free agency was delayed for a year. But, I mean, in Eloy's case, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what more that guy can do. I mean, he's only played AAA for a month, but he's in close to 400 with eight home runs. You know, Kopech's case, I mean, you could certainly argue that he needs to, you know, fine-tune the control and command a little bit more. But I don't know if they're, you know, I mean, I don't know if they're ever going to be, you know, I mean, he could get a little bit better, but he's never going to be like a precise pitcher. He's going to blow you away with stuff. So it's unfortunate, but if you're a White Sox fan, you, you know, as goofy as this sounds, you probably should root for them not to come up, you know, until, you know, late April next year. Luis Robert is the 26th ranked prospect. And he's been limited because of injuries, which we'll get to that topic in a moment. But has he displayed enough for you, Jim, to be confident that Luis Robert is a future impact player because the White Sox invested a lot of money into him? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I'm afraid that he's displayed enough for me to be confident, but he hasn't dissuaded me from that notion. I mean, the guy's only played 21 games in the U.S., 
Um, and he hasn't homered. So I, I wouldn't say that, like, he he blew us all away while he was on the field. But, I mean, he has been hurt. I mean, the speed's been obvious. The raw power's there. The athleticism's there. So, I mean, you could see why he was so highly regarded. I mean, I've always kind of envisioned him as kind of the outfield, outfield version of Yohan Mankata, you know, and I, and I think that is kind of what he is, or, or at least that's what his potential can be. Now, Nick Madrigal, the first-round pick for the White Sox in 2018, is the 33rd overall-ranked prospect, fourth in the White Sox system. As we record this, Jim, Madrigal has yet to strike out since joining the White Sox. <laughs> How fast do you think he could move through the minors? I think he could move real fast. Again, you have to look into service time issues. I mean, there's no need for him to be ready next year. Do I think that, say, by August or September of next year, he'll have enough experience to where he could, you know, hold his own and acquit himself well in the big leagues? I mean, not necessarily be what he's going to be at his peak. But, yeah, I, I do. The guy, the guy can just really, really hit. And it's funny because, did you mention, I hadn't even noticed, uh, I've been so focused on the trade deadline, they hadn't struck out in his first 17 pro games. But I actually did a radio show, and they weren't, serious, but the, the gist of the radio show was right after the College World Series was like, what's up with Nick Madrigal? Because he just went 0 for 13 in the in the best of three finals. Um, and I was like, well, sometimes guys have three bad games. He, this guy was the best hitter in the draft. He's going to be a really good second baseman. You know, I mean, I, I don't think... I don't know if there's much you really need to do with him. I mean, yeah, you know, getting a little bit more adjusted to wood bats and professional pitching... And, you know, and playing seven days a week for a longer season, getting used to that, like, all those things. But, like, in terms of a, like, you know, skills standpoint, ah, I don't know what he really needs to do. Um, I, I don't think he's going to be a shortstop. I mean, I, I would certainly try to play him there. I, I just don't think the arm is, is quite what you want in a shortstop which is why I think he's more of a second baseman. You know, but they'll fool around with that a little bit and, and take a look there. But I, I don't know. I really don't know what what, I, what you're going to do other than say go out there and play. I mean, he's hitting, what, 375 and low A ball? I mean, I know it's only 11 games. But, uh, you know, just roll him out there and, and let him play. So I, I think we'll see him. My guess is we could be going through the same discussion we're having with Eloy and Kopech. In 2019, at the beginning of the season, we'll probably have that discussion with Nick Madrigal at the beginning of the 2020 season. Dylan Cease is the 45th-ranked prospect in the top 100, fifth in the White Sox system. And Jim, he's pitched over 100 innings, that milestone in 2018 already, and he's still racking up strikeouts, appears to still be strong during his starts, and he's been quite impressive since joining the Birmingham Barons. I think the question still lingers, though. Is Cease a future starting pitcher in the majors. And I'm going to say yes. I, I, I admit I had some doubts. You know, we hadn't seen him really, uh, uh, you know, gone. I think his career high coming in this year was like 93 in the third innings, and, he, and he's still going strong. But, like, I don't see that there's a huge difference when you're stacking him up against Kopech. I mean, Kopech throws harder, but, but Cease throws plenty, plenty hard. You know, Cease's curveball and Kopech's slider are both wipeout breaking balls at their best. They both have, like, a decent, you know, but not, you know, a changeup that takes a backseat to their other stuff. And they both need to throw more strikes, but they, they miss a lot of bats, and, and they're hard to hit. So um, he's really stepped it up, at least in my eyes this year, by keeping this stuff, uh, you know, throughout the season like he has. Um, so I, I, I will, 
I will fully invest in him as a starter right now. Now, back to the injuries that we mentioned when speaking about Luis Robert. The White Sox, in a lot of ways, have been really impacted by injuries in the minor leagues. Dane Dunning ranks 66 in the top 100. He's out for the rest of the minor league season. Mike Rodolfo out with Tommy John surgery. Jake Berger blew out his Achilles twice before the season began. We still haven't seen Zach Birdie pitch in a game in 2018, and Alec Henson has struggled big time since missing the first half. As an evaluator and someone that speaks with numerous executives and scouts, when a system has this many injuries to possible impact prospects, Jim, does that make you worry for their future development? No, I think you have to look on a case-by-case basis. I mean, I certainly don't think there's anything that the White Sox are doing wrong, like to keep their guys healthy. I mean, Louis Robert, you know, hurt his thumb. You know, Jake Achilles, Jake Achilles, and <laughs> Jake Berger blew out his Achilles, run out of ground ball, and then re-injured it. You know, Adolfo and Donnie had elbow issues. I mean, you know, Birdie had Tommy John surgery. You know, that happens to pitchers. So I don't think it's anything they're doing. I mean, with those guys specifically. I think it varies from player to player. With Robber, you know, not. You know, I mean, he had what knee and ankle injuries last year too. All minor stuff. I mean, a little disappointing. You haven't been able to play more, but nothing that should bother him long term. With Adolfo, yeah, you know, he had Tommy John surgery, uh, you know, which is unfortunate. But long term, that shouldn't affect him. Uh, I mean, shoot, even if he lost a full grade of arm strength, it would be a plus arm. It's it's scary. If he comes back throwing harder like, like a lot of these guys do, uh, maybe they should put him on the mound and he'd probably throw 100 miles an hour. But, like, I don't think it really affects him. With Berger, it does worry me a little bit just because to blow it out twice, that seems unusual to me. Um, you know, this is a guy – I liked him as a third baseman. There were some guys who questioned it. You wonder about how the range is going to be, what the athleticism is going to be like after a year off. Losing a full year of at-bats, it's not you know, career-threatening, but it's, it's kind of disappointing. You know, Birdie, you know, I guess we should get him back. You know, I don't feel pitched this year. It's been about 12 months since he had the surgery. But, I mean, that was kind of par for the course. Um, you know, Dunning. A little disappointing. Um, you know, you're hoping he recovers from the elbow injury, you know, without having, you know, any kind of major surgery. But he was really making strides. Uh, you know, I think he was kind of on course to pitch in the big leagues next year. And now you wonder a little bit about his health. I mean, I guess the other guy besides Berger who I worry about is Hansen, just because, you know, he pitched so well in 2017 after struggling so much in the spring of 2016 when he was had a chance to go number one overall. And it's so hard for him to keep that delivery in sync and keep it all together. And he's really, really battled his control since he came back. And, again, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, you forearm soreness, and then the guy really is having trouble throwing the ball where he wants. A lot of times that adds up to Tommy John down the road. Um, so I, I just, I'm a little worried about him, not so much if he would have to have Tommy John surgery, but that the control has really, really deteriorated, kind of like it did in the spring of 2016. And the question is going to be, you know, can you get him healthy and can you get him back to where he was in 2017? So I, of all those guys, Hanson's the guy I'd worry about the most, and then probably Berger. The other four guys I just think is more of a bump in the road. On this show, we think that Luis Wasabe has taken a big step forward in 2018. Who on your list do you think has improved the most for the White Sox prospects in 2018? Um, I think Wasabe would be one of them. I, I still would like to see him make a little bit more contact, but he'd be one. Um, you know, I mean, I, I know like the guy who made the biggest jump in our rankings 
was Luis Gonzalez, but like I don't know if he's really any better as it is he's you know gotten up to full season ball and he's hit at two levels. So I think it's in his case, I wouldn't say he's improved so much as uh, just kind of showed what he could do, you know, more than anything. I mean, I don't know. To me, it might be a guy like a like a Jimmy Lambert or Bernardo Flores might be two guys who I think have improved. Uh, you know, Lambert, you know, was a guy. You know, both those guys, you know, kind of excited the White Sox when they first got him out of the draft. Then they had kind of some ups and downs in 2017, and they've pitched a lot better this year. Um, you know, I think Flores actually threw harder in his, in his draft summer than he does now, but, he, but he's a better pitcher. I think Lambert's a better pitcher. So, I mean, I think it would probably be those two guys. And, and then the guy who's kind of, I guess, kind of come out of nowhere for me um, and wasn't anywhere close to the list or really, to be honest, on my radar coming into the year it was Laz Rivera, who, you know, went out. And I know he's older, but he went out and he, and he tore up the Sally League and he's playing pretty well in high A. I mean, I think we'll we'll, we'll kind of find out more how real he is when he gets to double A. And yeah, you know, I know he's got nine walks this year, 95 games, but he's I mean, he's hitting 323. He's slugging almost 500. And he's playing pretty decent shortstop. That's a pretty interesting guy. Um, and and I'll be honest. I mean, I don't know about you, Josh. I mean, had, had you was he on your radar coming into this year? No, typically 24th rounders are <laughs> not on my radar until they start hitting well. It wins in Salem, but you're right. I mean, the numbers that he put up in Kannapolis, you couldn't ignore, and he's still hitting since being promoted with a dash. Yeah, it's funny. I actually talked to a scout on our team who just was doing coverage of the White Sox, and he was asking me, like, you know, he was telling me, like, oh, there's this, this shortstop, I can't remember his name, that I ran into. I think he was actually scouting the other team. He was like, there's a shortstop on, this other, on the White Sox club. And I was like, I was like, oh, you mean Lazar Vera? He's like, yeah, yeah, he really liked Lazar Vera, and he had never heard of him either. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think he, his development has been a real nice positive for the uh, for the organization. You can follow Jim on Twitter. He's at Jim Callis MLB. Read his excellent work on MLBPipeline.com, where they also have a podcast, and you could watch Jim from time to time on MLB Network. Jim, as always, thank you for your time, and it was great to have you back on the show. Yeah, great talking to you, Josh. As always. Welcome to the Minor League Report. Before we begin the jog through the affiliates, some injury news. Zach Birdie made his first appearance in nearly 13 months on Saturday, starting for the Arizona Rookie League's White Sox affiliate. He allowed a run on a hit and a walk over two-thirds of an inning, and Eric Longenhagen of Fangraph said Birdie was working between 93 and 95 miles per hour. He's hanging around at Camelback Ranch with Luis Robert, who was 6-for-14 in his first four games back from his thumb injury. Now to Charlotte, where Michael Kopech threw his fifth straight strong start. He allowed just two runs and eight hits, and more importantly, zero walks over seven innings, striking out eight. That gives him 41 strikeouts to four walks over 31 innings during the stretch. He'd be up in Chicago by now if the White Sox believed in rewarding prospects. Speaking of which, Eloy Jimenez caused a brief stir when he was late scratch from Charlotte's lineup right after Larry Garcia tweaked his hamstring during Sunday's game. MLB.com's Scott Merkin said it was flu-like symptoms, and so maybe the more telling swap is Jose Rondon getting scratched for Ryan Lamar. In Birmingham, Dylan Cease lowered his ERA to 1.99 with his third consecutive scoreless start. He struck out nine over six one-hit innings against Mobile on Saturday, giving him a scoreless streak of 19 innings, during which he struck out 28 to just 10 base runners. While he could earn a promotion to Charlotte, he's already into unprecedented workload territory at 112 innings. He set a previous career high with 93 last season. Cody Madero struggled in his first full start for the White Sox organization on Sunday, allowing six runs on five hits and four walks over five innings, striking out six. 
Then again, pitching hasn't been the problem for the Barons, who have scored a total of 14 runs over their last seven games. Zach Collins is batting 209 in 38 games since the All-Star break, and Luis Basabe is 0 for 12 with eight strikeouts over his last three games, although he was out of the lineup four days in a row during the stretch. Winston-Salem and Kannapolis spent most of the week dealing with horrible weather in North Carolina, delaying the new-level debuts for the White Sox' first two draft picks in 2018. Nick Madrigal is 5 for 12 with the walk in his first three games with the dash, although he finally struck out in his 72nd plate appearance of his professional career. He's teamed up with Laz Rivera to form a formidable combination up the middle. Rivera had a four-hit game on Friday, followed by his fifth homer with the dash. He's now up to 11 on the season, slugging 509 between the two levels. Steel Walker is off to a slow start in his A-ball debut, with just one hit and one walk over his first 11 plate appearances at Kannapolis. Check out SoxMachine.com for a brief Q&A with Walker from our man in Kannapolis, Jonathan Lee. The guy is a personality and was very excited about no sales tax. The Intimidators, by the way, are 23-18 in the second half, good for third place in the South Atlantic League Northern Division. However, first-half champ Lakewood is leading the division in the second half, meaning the team with the next best overall record would get the second postseason spot. And that happens to be Kannapolis, which has a six-game edge over the Delmarva Shorebirds, so that losing streak to end the first half may not cost them a shot at extra games at the end of the year. In Great Falls, Bryce Bush was promoted to the Voyagers after tearing up the Arizona Rookie League, and he's held his own so far. He's 3-for-12 with a walk and two strikeouts over his first three games, and the hits are a homer, triple, and double. Third-round pick Connor Pilkington also made the jump to the Voyagers, and he gave up two runs on four hits and a walk in his first Pioneer League start on Friday. And while Lennon Sosa burst out of the gate to grab the early attention among international signings who aren't Luis Roberts, Amado Nunez has caught up. He went 5-for-5 five five on Saturday to raise his average to 324 with a 358 OBP and 482 slugging. Great Falls is hitter-friendly, but Nunez is just 20 years old, playing mostly at second base. The promotions of Bush and Pilkington leave the AZL White Sox without a lot of star power, although the rehab stints of Birdie and Robert help. They have the league's lowest OPS at 639, thanks to their league-low five homers. First baseman Harvin Mendoza doesn't have much competition for the team's most effective hitter. He leads the team in OPS by 80 points on the strength of his 417 OBP. The DSL White Sox are 12-42 this season, but 7-6 over their last 13 games. That's it for the Meyer League Report. Now we'll answer your White Sox question in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, or helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And I rejoined with Jim Margulis to answer your guys' questions this week. And Jim, the first question we have comes from Joe Farrell. And Joe is asking, based on what success metrics would the White Sox retain the services of Todd Steverson for 2019? Well, when it comes to hitting coaches, you know, I've been doing this since uh, 2006. So you're writing about it. And I really don't know if there's any way to really understand how good a hitting coach is. I think there are some very good ones. And I think the most of them are basically interchangeable. And I think when it comes to Steverson, when they brought him in from Oakland, they had the idea that they wanted to, you know, install him as the hitting coach in the majors and have him serve as like a tone setter for the rest of the organization, like a top-down hitting coach, the way Don Cooper sets the agenda for White Sox pitching coaches. And and they wanted a similar setup. So, you know, to kind of bail on him after two years of 
poor results wouldn't make much sense. Um, you know, now these five years in the job and, uh, you know, guys aren't really performing, you know, Monka has been hit or miss the, you know, I guess Avi's results are sticking around a little bit. Now he's, you know, kind of pounding the ball again. Uh, you know, Larry Garcia is somebody who couldn't hit a lick, you know, even with Texas, he's figured out an effective offensive approach with his skill set. You know, Yolmer has been somebody who figured it out. You know, Bray has been good. You know, like there've been a number of guys who are okay and, and, and kind of on his ledger in the win side, but then just a lot of, you know, I guess disappointing performances, missed opportunities. The thing that's hard to separate it is, is from the talent evaluators. Like it's not like anybody really has gone on from the White Sox and lit it up anywhere else. They kind of, they end up, White Sox end up kind of being the place where hitters just end up getting their last bats or last meaningful playing time. So even Tyler Saladino, he had the big month to open it up with Milwaukee. He's had a, he had a mediocre July. He's kind of back to where he was. So, you know, that's not necessarily a strike against Steverson either. So when it comes to Steverson, I don't really know. And I mean, you know, I, was, I kind of went through it with Greg Walker and Jeff Manto and, you know, Jeff Manto had the benefit of saying some really questionable things about the uh, value of walks and on-base percentage and such, whereas Steverson, I think is, you know, Selective aggression is kind of, you know, makes sense. If it's in the zone, hit it. Like, you know, I guess Daniel Polka would be the selective aggression guy. Just anything in the zone, swing like hell. But, um, you know, overall, when it comes to ability to mold hitters, you know, I don't know if replacing him would be any different. I don't know if the White Sox are convinced. I I think uh, I would not be opposed to it. You know, if they change hitting coaches at the end of the year, cool. But it's just something based on the way the White Sox have swapped guys out and not seen any kind of more meaningful results. Uh, I don't really know if that would make a difference. It might be something with the talent acquisition and, and scouting and something Steverson has a little to do with. Yeah, I'm currently reading Keith Law's book, Smart Baseball, and he wrote a whole chapter about on-base percentage. And the correlation between on-base percentage and runs scored is the strongest out of your three hitting splits stronger than slugging and stronger than batting average what's interesting is that slugging though is stronger correlated to more wins per year than on base percentage but both of them are very high and when i wrote that article about the last 15 years on on base percentage woes for the chicago white Sox because it's pretty poor as a team at the moment it that blame mostly falls on kenny williams and rick Hahn not acquiring good players that constantly get on base, but there hasn't been any progress with Todd Steverson. Yeah. And, and that's where if the decision came down to me and I was running the Chicago White Sox baseball operations, that's why I would let Todd Steverson go after this year. There just hasn't been any progress for the Chicago White Sox since he's taken over and they're not even league average. They've been below league average every year that Steverson has been at the helm. And that's gotta be something that Rick Hahn has to stress his general manager on whoever's on this coaching staff. They have to get better at getting on base offensively to help support whatever starting pitching staff they're going to have, or this is 2015 and 16 all over again. Yeah, but so when it comes to the players acquired, it's not like they have a rich history of drawing walks. No, but again, that, that is on Rick Hahn, though. He's got to do yeah. a better job of doing that. Yeah, I just don't think that, you know, Steverson, if he's getting guys who don't draw walks, you know, it's hard to do that at the major league level unless, like Todd Frazier was a guy who started walking more, but that's kind of because he was following stuff off in the zone and 
working longer counts inadvertently and ended up walking as a result. But yeah, just, you know, when you look at the hitters acquired and, and, you know, the, the dead end they hit with the White Sox, I think part of it's Steverson, you know, part of it's, I think, just kind of overall, just the, the front office as a whole. And that does extend to the coaching staff some. Um, you know, it's kind of all intertwined. So when it comes to Steverson, it's like, you know, no real reason to keep him or he doesn't hasn't shown himself as special, but mm-hmm. well, replacing him solved the problem. I think it's more of an acquisition thing. And the, again, in that article, the White Sox, thanks to the original piece written by Scott Merkin when they hired Steverson, uh, they put in more effort hiring Todd Steverson than they did Robin Ventura or Rick Renteria as manager. Yeah. That's that's yeah. bizarre. <laughs> that's mind-blowingly dumb. In my yeah, and they liked and they liked Oakland because of their track record of drawing walks, right? And 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 teaching you know patience and such up and down the lineup or up and down the system rather. And that that hasn't occurred, but the big spikes we're seeing in the minor leagues, I think, has to do more with the types of players that Nick Hostetler and Chris Getz teaming up on drafting and developing. Yeah, than anything that was being told from the top down. I think it's just a different type of player that the White Sox are acquiring in the draft. And again, I, I know it's stale and a lot of people have question marks about some of the guys that the White Sox have drafted, but these guys get on base. And they're if you watch the Winston-Salem Dash, they score runs in bunches. Canapla scored runs in bunches in the first half. The Birmingham Barons are a totally different team in the second half than the first half. The, these guys get on base, they make things happen, and they, these teams are performing much better in the second half. So I think that there is something to that. It's something to keep an eye on moving forward. Um, but, Joe, it, it's a good question. Do do you think that the White Sox will make a change after this year, Jim? Probably not. If you have to bet on the White Sox making a change from an incumbent, you, <laughs> you say no. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. I agree with Jim, Joe. I don't think Todd Steverson would be removed, but if you're openly questioning why he's going to be sticking around – there's really no good reason why. Well, I would say probably, you know, perhaps if there is no traction next year, then I imagine a change would be made. I think that would be more likely. Sure. Because I think that's when pressure organization-wide starts ramping up. Yes. You know, and at that point then, it's like, why don't you promote within? Why don't you promote the guys that are working with these young hitters in Woods at Salem or in Birmingham, you know? Well, yeah, I think they would. I mean, that's kind of if you fire a hitting coach midseason, that's usually how it happens. Like, or, or it's usually how, you know, the interim is usually a guy from within the system. So those guys are always there theoretically um, to make a move at any time. If you want to hire outside the system, then you make the change in the offseason. Right. Joe, good question. Our next question comes from Matt. And Matt is asking. Would White Sox fandom cool off if Rick Hahn announced tomorrow that Aloy Jimenez's remaining boxes to check off are to improve his fielding, throwing, and or base running? Maybe a little, but no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's, uh, you know, Han just kind of, he painted himself into a corner with a, a terse response, he, you know, kind of pretending. Um, uh, yeah, at first I was going to say it was like uh, Richard Nixon having a secret plan to get out of Vietnam and it turned out that he didn't actually have one. It was more of a myth. But, uh, uh, you know, that kind of thing where just, uh, you know, he talked himself in the corner. He didn't expect the follow-up. He answered it poorly. And, you know, it's, uh, he screwed up and he seldom does. Like he's very disciplined. He seldom talks himself into a corner. And so the fact that he did, I think that's why everybody's having fun with it because he, 
you know, Han gives away very little. It's, you know, he doesn't have the kind of, you know, for all of Kenny Williams' faults and, and for some reason he didn't like him, he was also good at giving some, um, you know, quotes that make you want to run through the wall, <laughs> kind of get you fired <laughs> up about what, how the White Sox are doing. Yeah. Han doesn't have that gear. You know, he just, he's very much somebody who brings everything towards the middle. So, um, you know, that's why he has the cliches and, you know, that are well-worn and everything like that. So the fact that he did screw up, I think, is the reason why fans are uh, delighting in it and, and maybe rubbing in a little bit just because he they're seldom in a position where they can actually turn his words on him. And it was goofy how he did it, and uh, he just has to live with it for a bit. After this weekend on the Hit and Run Show, it's one of my favorite baseball podcasts produced over at 670 The Score, Barry Rosner and Joe Ostrowski, who's been on the show, they run that show, and Barry Rosner spoke with Chris Getz. And Chris Getz said that Jimenez and Kopech will be arriving very soon. That is a much better way of putting that situation than these two guys need to check off some boxes. Because very soon, we could debate, oh, what does that mean? What does the timing mean? Are they close? But when you say things like check off the boxes and they, you know, one guy's hitting better than 375 and Michael Kopech's been pretty much unhittable and he's not walking anybody anymore, just makes you, like I said last week, makes you look dumb. Yeah, well, I think with, uh, well, the thing that was that was screwy about that quote is that he said that, you know, he's not going to tell you what a player can't do. And he spent a lot of time talking about what Kopech couldn't do. <laughs> so that was, yeah, <laughs> right. so that was just not true. You know, it wasn't uh, valid based on how he previously regarded, you know, players and their checklists and their uh, things they had left to prove in Charlotte. So he just got caught in a, uh, he talked himself in, yeah, whether it was a lie or whether he just a uh, poor cover up of, uh, you know, what they're actually trying to do and. Uh, yeah, that's, I think the, <laughs> yeah, that's just, uh, how it worked out. And Jimenez is not going to be a great fielder and he's not going to be a great thrower and he's not going to be a great base runner. Yeah. And the, and the White Sox don't have the impeccable standards of outstanding corner outfield play. <laughs> like, yes, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, you got to live up, you know, the pitching staff expects, uh, left fielders to catch everything, you know, to have, uh, you know, lead the league in range. You know, they've had Delmonico out there. They've had Melky out there. They've had Vicieto out there. It's like Jimenez, you know, has those guys beat as yep. raw as he might be, or as 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 uh, I guess um, conservative as his routes are. He tends to, you know, from reading reports, he you know rounds balls off. Uh, doesn't you know isn't confident enough to take straight lines. Will you know play outs into singles? You know that kind of thing. Um, the White Sox have guys who do that already, who have done that for years. <laughs> they play outs in the triples sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah, it'd be, it'd be nothing new. It'd be nothing new. I mean, it's it's a good question, Matt. I do agree with Jim. It would, it would, it, the tables would turn. Instead of looking at Aloy Jimenez and be like, oh, what can he improve upon? It would be, Rick Hahn, what are you looking at, Right. It, even a little bit more than what some people are doing now, both as far as in the media and in White Sox fandom after he made that quote. Props to Aloy Jimenez, though, and Michael Kopech, our man down in Charlotte, Jonathan Lee, has done a terrific job interviewing both and asked him both about the checking of boxes, and I think both of them are taking it as best in stride as possible. I would not blame them if they are a little bit frustrated about the situation, though. But you can't tell based on the performance. Both of them are still playing at a very, very high level. And using Rick Hahn's words, they are most definitely pressing the issue. 
Forcing the issue. Forcing the issue. I can't even get it right. Forcing the issue. Damn it. Oh. Just, in, just in case people were yelling at the podcast, I wanted to step in. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, Matt. Our next question comes from Matt Max. And Matt is asking, guess at second half record, can they put together a 500 second half? I like this question. Yeah, I'm going to say no, but... I think they can avoid 100 losses, so I'm putting them at 30 and 37. They're 8 and 8 right now in uh, in August, so um, you know, and, and they've been terrible in August. That's usually when the losses pile up is right after the trades, before September call-ups kind of refresh the roster and bring up guys with upside, and they just have to sift through the journeymen and, and guys who have been bumped to roles above their pay grades. Uh, August usually is the roughest month for the White Sox in recent history. So if they can get through this, then maybe, you know, maybe when uh, the rosters are refreshed and the White Sox are playing, you know, a lot of guys are playing to win. And, you know, we saw the Tigers do the super tanking job last year. So I never <laughs> rule them out when it comes to plummeting, you know, down and maybe giving the White Sox some wins. But I'm going to say they're going to finish 30 and 37 second half and they'll finish with a 63 and 99 record. All right. I like it. I like the optimism. It's all about this week. If you're looking at August and hoping that the White Sox have a winning month in August, this is the week. Six games at home, three against the Yankees, and three against the Indians. After this series, and they have three games in Detroit, and then they come back home for three games against the Royals for that weekend, and then two games against the Minnesota Twins, and then they go on the road to Detroit for a four-game series. Then they go to the Bronx for three games, and then they end August, open up September with a four-game home series against the Boston Red Sox. Something that caught my eye, Jim, is that the White Sox are now closer in the standings to Detroit than Kansas City, thanks to this little winning streak that they put together. They're just five and a half games back at the Detroit Tigers. So a follow-up to this question, can the White Sox catch Detroit in the standings? I think so. Um, just because I had, I think I picked the White Sox to beat the over-under just because I thought Detroit would help pad their record. You know, when you see the <laughs> Central being how it is, four teams under 500, that's why I thought, yeah, I didn't think the White Sox would be would beat the over-under based on their talent level or that they would you know be, be a shadow contender or uh, like Chuck, I think Chuck Garfine had him as, <laughs> as a possible wild card contender. I didn't see that happening. I just thought that they might be able to get some soft wins from the teams below them in the standings. I thought it'd be Kansas City and Detroit. So, you know, that could still hold out and just might be that they get the wins at the end of the season instead of beforehand. So I can see them around the same same win-loss record. I just think uh, it would be nice perhaps this year if the Tigers play, you know, show a little bit more uh, incentive at the end of the year and don't uh, plummet all the way to the top of the uh, draft pile the way that it did the last year. That was really stunning and remarkable but uh also just like yeah yeah that, that was neat for one year but you know, if the white Sox are going to be bad and i don't want to see the white Sox tank either but i would just don't want to see the, the you know detroit lose what you know i forget how many they lost but like do a thing where they you know, lose 20 out of the last 25 and just blow by everybody that would be yeah once is enough yeah the white Sox and tigers have 10 games remaining against each other unfortunately for the white Sox, seven of them are in detroit they have one last home series against the Tigers, and that is September 3rd through the 5th, the 3rd being Labor Day. Great question, Matt. 
Well, thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. Greatly appreciated. If you have a question or a topic you would like Jim and I to tackle on a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And you can help support the show and the website by signing up to become a friend of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash Socks Machine where you get an opportunity to get additional content every single week. Our Patreon supporters got an opportunity to ask additional questions from Jim Callis, for example, that he answered that only our Patreon supporters will be able to listen to. And of course, the opportunity for them to ask additional P.O. Sox questions that Jim answers for them additionally every single week on top of the extra stuff, writing, etc. as far as content. So if you're interested in getting more content from us and you like to support us, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today and that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast again thank you so much for our guest jim callis for joining us if you just discovered the podcast you can subscribe in a variety of ways one is through itunes spotify google podcasts and audioboom.com slash socks machine the socks machine podcast is a production of socksmachine.com your home for all things chicago white Sox baseball Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.